Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Able's Abstracts, the podcast where we abstract away the complexity of building products for the next generation of the internet and finance. My name is Abel Tedros, and I will be your host today as we dive into today's episode. So today I am very excited to announce that we have a guest. And this guest is an investor, or I should say ex-founder turned investor. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show, Carl. Hey, Abel. Thanks so much for having me on. Super excited to be here. Likewise, likewise. I am super excited for this conversation. So I did a kind of one-liner there for your background, but I'd love for you to kind of elaborate on that because I do think you have quite an interesting story of how you got into crypto. I know that you started Pristine Software, which is creating software for Google Glass for surgeons. Uh, You actually went on to raise 5 million, so congratulations. But then unfortunately, Google Glass kind of took the rug from under your feet and uh, kind of uh, shut down the project. And that obviously had an impact. So that's obviously informing your the way you invest in crypto. So yeah, how did you get into crypto and kind of elaborate on that story? So I guess a quick background on myself. I grew up in Austin. I've been programming since I was a little kid. My dad was a computer scientist and engineer. Uh, so I started programming when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, I went to NYU to study finance, thinking I wanted to go down the, the career, the finance kind of route. While I was in college, I realized my, my passion was, was tech startups and, and computer science. So after college, I decided to get into starting my own thing. So when I was 23, I started my first company called Pristine. Pristine built software for Google Glass for surgeons. The kind of idea was we built all the software automation you would expect to do. So things like recording videos, looking up documentation, video streaming, those kinds of things. So grew that business to a few million in revenue, raised about five million in venture. And then Google, as you might remember, killed Glass. And that, that kind of effectively ended the business. So pivoted the company. Um, ultimately, the company was acquired for engineering talent and for IP. I found myself unemployed, and so I had to figure out what I was going to do next. And so in January, excuse me, in March of 2016, I discovered this thing called Ethereum, um, and Ethereum was was pretty interesting to me. Ethereum is what really drew me into crypto. Uh, over the course of 2016, I started reading about the history of Ethereum, reading about the history of Bitcoin, understanding you know the design constraints in these systems started getting into the other crypto things that were around at the time. So things like Augur, things like Monero, Zcash. In kind of spring of 17, it was pretty clear that ICO fever was really heating up. Um, and at that point, uh, I sat down with Tushar, who's my best friend and is now my co-founder. Tushar and I met at NYU 12 years ago. Tushar and I had been kind of going down the crypto rabbit hole together. And in spring of 2017, we said, hey, we can do this professionally. Uh, and so we made the decision in May of 17 to launch Multicoin. And we launched our hedge fund October 1st, 2017. Fantastic. What a, what a wonderful story. And, you know, the fact that, you know, with your first startup, Google kind of like took the rug from under your feet gives you a really interesting kind of perspective on platform risk. Because I know that what we're trying to build here with DeFi and Web3 and all this cool stuff around crypto is to to allow for permissionless innovation and kind of allow for that to happen. So, yeah. Thank you for telling us about that. So you are someone that I am incredibly excited to have this conversation with because like I said at the top of the conversation, you have a really strong macro view of what's going on in crypto. I've actually used your thesis to describe what's going on in in crypto, you know, when speaking to many folks who aren't in the space. So I'd love for you to spend some time talking about your major crypto thesis and, you know, DeFi, open finance, Web3, global state-free money. Uh, What is your thesis and uh, how did this come about? You know, we got into crypto in 2016. Over the course of the next couple of years, you know, saw people playing with different ideas. There was always kind of this, this thing in the background of Bitcoin. Is it cash? Is it digital gold? Over the course of kind of 2018, it became pretty clear that the digital gold was was the defining kind of winning thing for Bitcoin. 
you know, we started to kind of see DeFi start to emerge around the end of 18. And we kind of heard all these rumblings about Web3 for the last few years. And so, you know, we saw all these people playing with crypto ideas. It was clear that crypto was touching a lot of different verticals in the economy. And it wasn't clear how to tie all those together into kind of coherent frameworks. Uh, and so we, at the around the end of 18 and early 19, started to really put our rack our brains and say, hey, it feels like we're just kind of all over the place. And let, let's really formulate some, some really coherent macro theses on, on where crypto is going to matter and why. Um, and so we did that over the first couple months of 2019. And we published our crypto mega theses a little more than a year ago now in spring of 2019, kind of formalizing our thinking there. And so the three theses we kind of published were uh, open finance, uh, Web3, and the, non-sovereign, the opportunity for non-sovereign money. And um, just to kind of quickly touch on each of those, um, open finance is a superset of what was called DeFi now. Uh, the idea is, of course, to kind of increase financial access by letting people, you know, access financial services in, in uh, easier ways uh, and then engage in financial contracts in kind of trust-minimized ways. And, and that kind of largely reflects DeFi today. But I think open finance is a little bit bigger than that. Um, I think open finance also really encapsulates what's going on right now with all of the crypto exchanges, which are these interesting intermediary entities that bridge CFI and DeFi. And I think they're they're going to do a lot to help increase access for financial services and kind of grow this market. And so we think of open finance as, as a superset of DeFi. We talk about Web3. Um, there's a lot of kind of angles to that, but really it's about um, increasing uh, opportunities for developers to build sovereign applications and increasing opportunities for users to own sovereign data uh, and increase access to internet kind of commodities around the world. And so we've made a number of investments along that vector. And then the third is non-sovereign money. You can think of this as kind of Bitcoin's digital gold thesis. Uh, I actually think the digital gold thesis understates the opportunity for non-sovereign money because like, if you can get usable peer-to-peer cash that also happens to have strong scarcity benefits like Bitcoin does, scarcity traits like Bitcoin does, then you can actually create global digital cash and not just global digital gold. And, and we think that that kind of opportunity will bear fruit over the next decade. So those are the three kind of mega theses at a high level. And, and those three theses guide our investments. That's amazing. And one thing that kind of stuck out to me as you were speaking there is the kind of distinction between decentralized finance and open finance and how open finance is kind of the the major branch that DeFi sits within and how you include exchanges within the world of open finance. You actually came out with a really cool talk that I really enjoyed around exchanges and how you're so bullish on them, uh, in particular Binance, right? I'd love for you to talk a bit more about your views there and you know how open finance and exchanges, how that world plays and why you're so bullish on that. There's a real challenge today in getting from centralized finance to decentralized finance. You have this fiat crypto bridge and there, there aren't a lot of great solutions to the problem. And so the entities that exist at this bridge are in a very unique position to help onboard users to DeFi. But the reality is, is that that transition for most people, A, it's going to take a decade or longer. And B, a lot of people are going to live in a hybrid state. They're not going to go from binary from, from one to the other. And so the exchanges really live at an interesting intersection where they can onboard people into crypto, get them familiar with the technologies, the ideas, the ideologies, slowly get them comfortable with key management and being sovereign, but also in the interim provide interesting kinds of crypto-enabled financial services. So things like loans, things like staking, um, other things. That bridge to us seems very interesting, and that we think that that opportunity is going to keep growing for the next decade. And I think that as the technologies mature and you can kind of wholesale replace DeFi with CeFi, that those exchanges will kind of morph from their their kind of hybrid structures today to be more kind of pure play DeFi things over the next decade. Wonderful. And that 
dovetails perfectly into the blog post that I'm excited to talk to you today about, which is DeFi's invisible asymptotes, right? So it's the post uh, that you guys launched recently. Of course, everything that we discuss in this podcast will be linked in the show notes and in the newsletter as well. So everyone who's listening to this can get a chance to uh, have a look at the stuff that we're talking about. So in the post that we mentioned, DeFi invisible asymptotes, you go on to say that DeFi has a glass ceiling and DeFi and CeFi are kind of battling right now between usage, I guess, right? And so um, you go on to say that right now in DeFi, most of the activity is acquiring leverage, you know, borrowing from Maker, Compound, margin trading on DYDX, uh, trading on 0x, Uniswap, Kyber, IDX, and DYDX. And then, of, of course, getting exposure to synthetic assets uh, like synthetics or uh, via UMA. And then what you do is you go on to say that for most of these things, uh, CFI is actually a much better way of achieving your goals. So I'd love for you first to kind of talk a bit about the post and then kind of we'll dive into the actual nitty gritty and your particular thoughts on uh, the, the post. So yeah, just give us kind of a high level of what the post is about and uh, your thoughts around this. We've been thinking pretty hard over the last six months about DeFi, where it's at, what's working, what's not working, um, and, and kind of try to encapsulate those thoughts in a number of, of memos, some of which are, are internal and some of which we, we've shared externally, or, or publicly rather. And there are some things that are working really well in DeFi, and then other things that we're less clear that like they seem to be working, but we're not convinced that like they've really broken out. And, and so in the post I kind of talk about DeFi may be facing the glass ceiling, I don't want to say that with a high probability is the case, but I think it's worth acknowledging that DeFi may be close to some of its limits uh, in its current form. Uh, I think in the long run, DeFi is certainly going to, to be very interesting, but we just need to be cognizant that this stuff is early and the current incarnation may not be the, the, the final incarnation of these things. When you look at DeFi, the fundamental, per- the vast majority of DeFi activity today is used to accomplish one thing, which is basically to go margin long assets predominantly going on margin-long ETH. You know, if you look at the ways to accomplish that, um, there are three, basically. Um, you can lend or borrow, and then, you know, go sell the borrowed asset for whatever you want to go margin-long. You, you can just use um, a trading platform like DYDX to either go margin-long directly or to go synthetic-long, or you can do something like Synthetics or UMA to go synthetic-long on one of those trading engines. And so we've looked at those, and if you look right now at, at what is working the most of those, it's, it's lending. Compound and Maker, you know, their, their loan origination and outstanding loans are, are meaningfully larger probably than the, the other methods to get this leverage. Uh, but if you look at centralized financial markets, the substantial majority of the leverage is not coming from loans, it's coming from perpetual swap contracts primarily on these centralized exchanges. That tells you something. It's like, okay, well, why is CFI this way and DeFi this way? Um, I think that's primarily a function of the fact that trading on DeFi is just not there yet. And the question of, well, why isn't trading there um, is primarily a function of latency. You just cannot have a trading engine operating on 15-second block times. It just doesn't work. And so because of that, you have this kind of workaround, which is this manual lending borrow market, which is separate from a, a trading market. And so uh, as, as latency decreases, those things can collapse into one, whether it's done with margin or whether it's done synthetically. And we're seeing that kind of maturation happen right now. And so that's been kind of the crux of our thinking around DeFi. And we wanted to share that publicly, A, so that the community recognizes it and hopefully they can try and find solutions. And then B, you know, we're always looking to find the best entrepreneurs who have ideas on how to kind of break through these these limits. Awesome. And I love how you kind of 
at the bottom of the post towards the end you conclude with the fact that you know yeah latency is a big thing throughput is a big thing right and so uh, we can either approach this by completely rethinking or using a completely new layer one like Solana or kind of using something like scale to help increase uh, latency on the on the layer two uh, side of things so I want I want to dive into that but maybe towards the end of the conversation uh, but very quickly you mentioned acquiring leverage it's better to do it via CFI versus DeFi today. And you go on to say that DeFi protocols can't underwrite trust relationships and therefore require higher collateralization ratios. And obviously that increases the opportunity cost of, of the capital, right? And I completely agree there. The fact that these things are uh, pseudonymous is what requires folks to have to over collateralize to kind of guarantee their their repayment of their, their loans, right? Um, and I wonder if we find new ways to underwrite this trust relationship in DeFi, can we ever kind of get past this world of like over collateralization ratios in DeFi? Do you think we'll be able to uh, get there anytime soon? Looking at like how you break the bridge, I mean, the only way to get to under collateralized loans is trust. Like at the end of the day, if you're going to give me, a, if I give you $2 of collateral and you give me $10 and say, please pay me back, like the only way to like solve that problem is trust. There is no amount of financial engineering that's going to get you there. And so the question is, is like, how do you bootstrap trust and identity and reputation into these systems? And the reality is, is that like, it's not really clear that you need to do that on the blockchain. For example, right? Like Multicoin spends meaningful amount of time investing in its brand uh, and awareness uh, in the world. And so whenever we engage with a new counterparty or a new entrepreneur, they generally know who we are. That's obviously very intentional. There, now, there are some firms who kind of do choose to do that. There are other firms that say, look, we're not going to do that stuff. But for them, if they're going to go say, hey, look, uh, Genesis or um, JP Morgan or whoever, please give me, I'm um, you know, going to put up $5 of collateral, please give me a loan for $10. JP Morgan's going to say, okay, you know, please show me your audits from, from your auditor, showing me your risk management processes and whatever, right? And I'll underwrite those. And like the entirety of that underwriting process, like all of the data you're going to use to underwrite that loan exists off chain. And JP Morgan or whoever is going to issue that loan is never going to issue that loan unless they can like verify all of the underlying facts are correct. So if there's a world in which 100% of your transactions live on chain, then I guess you could go to JP Morgan and, and you know, show them like, look, here's all of our transactions. You can underwrite, you know, we've, our risk management processes is X. But like, we're just a very long way away from that. And even in that world where that exists, it's like, well, JP Morgan's underwriting standards are going to be different than you know, Merrill Lynch's are just going to be different than whatever else. And so everyone's notion of reputation or identity or like scoring you, so to speak, varies depending on their own risk parameters as a lender. And so it's not clear to me that like having quote unquote an identity or reputation on chain matters as long as like the person you're doing business with can independently verify their reputation in the lens they care about. And all of that can happen off chain. So I think DeFi in its current form is just not serving like that segment of the market. So like, will DeFi rails eventually be used to serve that second market? It's possible, but that, that seems pretty distant until we get there. Another thing that you kind of go on to say is you talk about trading and, and synthetic assets and how still in the world of CeFi, it's much easier and better to get those those things done there versus DeFi, right? And ultimately, you, always, you come back to this core point at the end of uh, the post where you just say, you know, throughput's an issue, latency's an issue, and, you know, DeFi is the most interesting thing happening on Ethereum right now. Ethereum isn't catering for uh, this particular case. So what do you think is going to happen here? Do you think there's going to be a... Because a bunch of layer ones are coming out and a bunch of layer twos are coming out. So how do you foresee things playing out in the in the future from that perspective? The post I wrote before uh, Invisible Asymptotes was called uh, 
on forking DeFi protocols. In that post, I kind of dove into individual DeFi protocols. And at the end of the post, I concluded with talking about network effects at, at the Ethereum level. And I concluded pretty strongly that Ethereum's network effects around DeFi are, are quite strong. There's real value that the ERC-20 standard is basically kind of the ultimate network effect where you have all these things and they all basically interoperate more or less using the ERC-20 standard. And that, that's pretty powerful. So I think displacing that in, is, is very, very, very difficult, uh, especially given the fact that most of the users of DeFi today are whales. And those whales are by definition ETH whales. And so like those ETH whales are unlikely to like move their capital to an alternative ecosystem anytime soon. So I think trying to bootstrap a DeFi ecosystem directly on another chain is almost impossible. That, that seems pretty stupid. The only way I think you're going to do it is by getting users using other chains. And so those other users and those other uses, by definition, has to be something that's not DeFi related. And I think there's a pretty large segment of the market that actually out there is interested in using blockchains for payments, for trust minimization, for some other things that are they basically have nothing to do with the current DeFi stack. Um, and I think those users could be on order of tens of millions in the next 24 months because with the right distribution partners. And so if that thesis is correct, that, that, that those users are out there, what I would expect to happen is over the next 24 months, you'll see usage numbers of those chains grow as people deploy their applications on these alternative chains that have more, more throughput and lower latency. Um, and as those numbers grow, you know, at first they're going to be dismissed by the Ethereum community. They're going to say it's low value transactions and, you know, these aren't real. It's going to be the same old FUD that you see in crypto. Same thing Bitcoin people said about Ethereum and whatever. But at some point, people are going to realize, wait a minute, this activity happening is organic and the, the people building these applications have meaningful distribution to users. Uh, why don't we try and, and enable these people to get access to DeFi-based financial services? Uh, and, and so I think that will happen over the next 24 months. I don't know when or how or which chain. That's much harder to, to forecast. But... I feel pretty strongly that like that's going to happen. What 2017 caused, it caused a whole ton of companies all over the world with all kinds of business interests to say, okay, this, what's this crypto thing? Is it relevant to my business? And actually quite a few of them determined the answer is, yes, it is interesting and relevant. And they started looking at, you know, building on Ethereum because that was the only thing that was around. And they all realized very quickly that like it's just never going to support their business. Um, and so they kind of just gave up and went home. But they've all been keeping their eye on this ecosystem and they're all looking to see when are we going to get scalability solved. And, and I think when they see meaningful scaling solutions, they're going to come back. And that's going to start to play out. Again, still very much on the edges and it's hard to see, but I feel pretty confident that that will be a major theme over the next 24 months. I wonder, will it play out in a similar way that 2017 played out in that um, Chris Dixon at A16Z said, you know, every time you have one of these hype cycles, the whole world uh, knows about it. You know, we get ahead of ourselves. A lot of people come into the space and then uh, a lot of the people leave the space, but then the few stay around and kind of continue to build. So I wonder, will it be a slow, progressive kind of realization that these scaling solutions exist and folks come into the space and start building? Or do you feel like it's going to be like another big bull run and, you know, we're going to have 2017 happen all over again? I don't know. Yeah, it's hard to say. I, I don't I don't over-index on repeating 2017. History doesn't repeat, it rhymes. So, you, you know, we'll see. Um, I, I wouldn't over-index on that happening, though. No. Cool. So that was a really kind of good breakdown of your post and your thoughts around DeFi and some of its uh, limitations and how it could potentially overcome them. Um, I'd love to jump in a quick rapid fire talking about other projects and, you know, why you're interested in them, namely uh, Helium, Solana and Arweave. So I guess we'll start off with Helium. So for those of the folks who don't know what Helium is, uh, maybe just a quick background and then uh, maybe dive into why you think it's interesting and uh, what we can learn uh, from this particular project. 
So we invested in Helium a year ago. Uh, we're, we're big believers uh, and supporters of Helium and are super excited about what they're doing. When we underwrote the investment a year ago, what we underwrote was that this is a new business model to deploy and manage wireless networks. And so over the last 12 months, what the Helium team has pretty definitively proven is that you can convince thousands of people all over the country. And actually, as of today, Europe and Asia, they announced this morning that Europe and Asia, are they're rolling out to now, uh, that you can convince thousands of people all over the country to invest capital in a hotspot, set it up at home, and create radio waves. Uh, and so today, there are more than 4,500 Helium hotspots live all over the United States. Uh, that number is probably going to blow past 10,000 by the end of the year. And they've built a wireless network nationwide scale on a CapEx that would be is less than 1% of what it would cost Verizon or AT&T to do the same thing. That is now proven. And, and so that, we just think, is just a breakthrough idea in, in building wireless infrastructure. We're super excited about that and the, and the community that's formed around Helium for all the people all over the country who have kind of bought into that vision and are investing in it and supporting it. What we see happening now is the demand side is starting to pick up. And so I'm not at liberty to talk about much yet, but I'm really excited to see early users of the network. There are now um, large enterprises using the Helium Network Live today. You can go kind of track stuff on the chain and, and see the data flowing through it. The identities of the people aren't disclosed and the companies aren't disclosed, but you can now see data flowing through the chain. And that, that's growing super fast. So I'm really excited to see now that the supply side is, is really stabilized and matured, uh, the demand side starting to pick up. And so that, that's just, I think, a, a, a world-changing opportunity. And we, we could not be more excited to be large investors in the Helium vision. Awesome. It sounds quite interesting, the Helium project. I did do a little bit of research on them uh, before this conversation. And yeah, I mean, the progress that has happened uh, in the time that the project's been around is, is quite impressive. So yeah, I'm excited to see um, how that plays out. Um, Solana. So this is another project I am incredibly excited about. I am actually due to interview the founder, Antele, uh, pretty soon. So I'm incredibly excited about that. And I know you're incredibly bullish on Solana and, you know, good friends with Antele. So I guess for the folks who don't know what Solana is, again, same thing. Uh, what is it? Why is it interesting? And what can we learn from Solana? We are, I think, more bullish crypto than even most of our, our peers and that the kind of power of this technology for example, like I think I said earlier, I think digital gold understates the opportunity for what crypto can be. But if you're going to have a global monetary system or a global financial system, you need to just be able to support scale. Uh, and so we've been thinking about how do you scale these systems? And one of the key things, if you look at all these blockchains that you come to realize pretty quickly, is they're all single-threaded computers, meaning that they can process one transaction at a time. Forget about mining or proof of stake. I'm just talking about actually taking the transactions users submit and processing those transactions. All of these systems are designed right now in such a way that users do not, uh, users have to, the, the blockchains are single threaded computers. And so every transaction is processed serially. That's a huge problem for scaling these things because you just have limits on how fast you can process things. The only way to build a globally scalable system is parallelism. Uh, you need to be able to process transactions concurrently. And so if you look at like the, the, the fundamental difference in Solana versus all these other layer ones is that Solana is the only system that enables parallelism within a single shard. Ethereum 2.0 and Cosmos and Polkadot and Nier and all these things, um, they all get you to parallelism, but they get you, they're all, each shard is, a sing, is basically a single lane. And so you, you, you can run each shard as, as one core or one thread. 
which is kind of a solution, but the problem is that if you ever want to move between shards, you get huge amounts of latency. Latency is measured on the order of minutes. Uh, and so the question is, is like, can you design a global financial system with a bunch of single-threaded computers that if they want to talk to each other, it takes a few minutes to go back and forth? Or are you going to build a global financial system with parallelism where latency between each of those threads is measured in, in you know, milliseconds? And our big bet with Solana is that you, you just, you have to get latency down. The most important thing that's clear at this point with crypto is that you, price matters and latency matters in all these systems, as we kind of talked about earlier on the DeFi and asymptote stuff. And so adding latency between computation lanes, you know, one or two seconds may be, may be fine, but, but minutes I, I find to be unacceptable. And so Solana is really the only team that's really uh, made a, a fundamentally different bet on how to think about scaling these things by minimizing latency while still enabling parallelism. And so that's, that's been why we made a big bet there. And a wise bet that is because, yeah, you're right. It is a really different way of, of thinking about things. Of course, uh, relative to other decentralized systems outside of just crypto, um, I guess you, you can see a lot of parallels uh, with other systems. But, you know, in terms of like taking this approach and applying it to like the world of decentralization and uh, censorship resistant uh, networks, Solana is definitely taking a, a really unique approach here. And so, yeah, it's, it's a it's a really cool project. And uh, I'm excited to see how, how it plays out and also uh, to see how things uh, develop. Um, Arweave. So I know, again, another project you're quite bullish on. So I'd love for you to tell us again what it is, why it's interesting, and uh, what we can learn from it. Arweave is a really interesting protocol. So like one of the, if you look at like Bitcoin, right, like starting around maybe 2012 or so, 2013, a lot of people started looking at Bitcoin saying, hey, this thing is really interesting. Um, it can store, if you put data in the Bitcoin blockchain, you have pretty strong guarantees that, that data is going to be there forever. And people started saying that that's a that's a very interesting trait, but the problem they realized very quickly is is that you basically can you can put a very small amount of data in the Bitcoin blockchain because of the cost of using the system. And Bitcoin was not intended to store large amounts of data; it's intended to store you know ledger entries of, that are moving money around. And, and so people said, you know, Sam, who's the founder of Arweave, said, "Man, this is a very powerful idea of, of having permanent data storage, but right now in Bitcoin, it only works for you know, basically ledger entries for, for moving money." Can, can we generalize this idea to arbitrary file types and arbitrary amounts of data storage? Um, and so Sam, uh, in late 17, early 18, came up with the kind of core idea for what became Arweave. And so the key insight with Arweave is that Arweave is not technically a blockchain. Um, the kind of data structure underneath is what's called a block weave. It looks like a blockchain, but the key difference is that in, in a block weave, as, this, as you increase the amount of data in the system, the consensus and everything around the system um, is designed uh, assuming that not all the nodes have 100% of the data. And so you, you can assume that different nodes have different pieces of the history, but the no one node um, has all the entire thing. Um, and if, if, if you can design the data structure to kind of accommodate that new design problem, then you can effectively scale that to infinite amounts of data. And so that's what, that's what Arweave um, is, is a protocol to enable permanent data storage. Like Bitcoin or any, or any of these other systems, if you want to add new data to, to the end of the ledger, you just pay in the native token, which in this case is Arweave. Uh, and the idea is you pay upfront one time for that data storage. And then the system takes that, that payment. It basically locks it in what the system calls it, its endowment, or you can think of it as like a smart contract in the system. Um, and then it slowly pays that endowment out to, uh, to the miners over time. Uh, and, and one of the cool things about Arweave is that the cost of data storage decreases every year. And so um, as long as the cost of data storage decreases by 0.5% per year, um, then you can have that upfront payment last forever. 
where let's say you pay up one token at, on day one, you know, if 10 years later, that might be like 0.2 might be left, but like you're just decreasing the amount you're paying out ever so slightly. And so you're approaching zero, but you never actually get to zero. And so uh, R we've kind of used is this kind of economic principle and this kind of novel data structure to produce block weave to create this incentive mechanism to incentivize people to store as much data as possible uh, and to be compensated for doing so. Uh, and so we met Sam a little more than a year ago and we're fortunate to invest and have been very public now, supporters of Arweave. Um, over the last year, the, the project's really come a long way. They rolled out version 2.0 a couple months ago and they brought on a lot of other fantastic investors, including uh, Union Square Ventures, Andreessen Horowitz, Coinbase and others. And yeah, we're, we're super excited about what Arweave's doing. Um, the Arweave network is right now growing exponentially in terms of data storage. And uh, it's really finding uh, a niche of people who care about long-term data integrity. And it's, yeah, it's just been growing like gangbusters. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm a big fan of uh, Sam's approach when it comes to mechanism design and how he's thought about uh, designing the whole kind of Arweave system. Like you've just outlined there, where the whole way he's designed cost of storage over the long term is a sign of, you know, incredible, incredibly thoughtful mechanism design and he's spoken about his mechanism design in the a16z uh, crypto startup school and of course we'll link that in the description a uh, fantastic hour-long lesson he essentially teaches on mechanism design talking about those things there um are there any other interesting things from a mechanism design perspective that you're quite uh, quite a fan of from Arweave? because i know that um they've done some really cool stuff so i wrote a blog post i think i published it in january called infinite scale um and infinite scale kind of uh, expands on on a lot of the ideas sam spoke about in his mechanism design chat and one thing I've kind of realized in these networks is what these open crypto networks are are about designing incentive mechanisms for different parties all over the world with different resources and different priorities to come together and agree on some sort of financial relationship or financial contract um, and then and kind of, you know, have all the parties engage in that contract. Um, and if the parties, you know, succeed successfully, right, then obviously the, some payment flow goes through. And if the parties misbehave, then there has to be some sort of penalty mechanism, right? And that, that's basically what all these blockchain systems are, all these crypto systems are. The first large-scale instantiation of this was Bitcoin mining. I mean, today, Bitcoin mining is obviously a very large, you know, mature industry. But if you look at this kind of new wave of Web3 things happening, you're starting to see that spill over into new kinds of demand. So not just demand for mining, but demand for video services, for query services, for data services, for network services. And so, you know, Helium kind of falls in the internet services bucket. Uh, we falls in the permanent data storage bucket. You know, one of the other big investments we made a couple of years ago was in a, a group called LivePeer. Uh, and LivePeer is really focused on, they, they found a very clever way to enable anyone to transcode video and rebroadcast it at scale. You know, the LivePeer team has been working on really cool ways to figure out, uh, A, how to find latent GPUs that can transcode videos, and then build a open permissionless network where anyone who needs to transcode videos can kind of come to that network and transcode them at much lower cost than going to Amazon. Uh, and so LivePeer is is really nifty, and I think they're actually going to be announcing a lot of kind of cool stuff pretty soon. Um, they've been running pilots with a lot of people, and I think those results will come public. Uh, and so I'm I'm super excited about what the LivePeer group is doing. It's a very niche thing, and video transcoding isn't you know like something people think about every day. But uh, given kind of where we are with COVID these days, actually the growth for video consumption on the internet is just skyrocketing. And so um, actually, as I look at kind of everything in the world, like look at all the crypto stuff. If I think about like what, what here is, is the most going to benefit directly from, from COVID, uh, live here is probably top of the list. Yeah. And I guess it makes sense with that conclusion, right? The increased video consumption, uh, therefore more transcoding. So it's a very clear connection there. 
Interesting. Yeah, I'm incredibly excited about life here too. And I know that you're, like you say, very bullish on it too. So of course, we'll put everything in here. I know you mentioned a post you wrote talking about uh, Sam's system with Arweave and, and, you know, talking about like permanence. We'll put that in the description as well for other folks to listen to. So yeah, that that's that's really good. Um, the final set of questions that I'd like to talk about uh, before we wrap up today's conversation, of which I have really enjoyed, by the way, because um, I like the way you explain things. It's a, it's a very good, uh, very good and concise way. And you kind of you have a really cool way of like connecting things together. Um, so that's really awesome. So a lot of folks listening to this podcast now are product folks, uh, developers, designers, people who want to build stuff. And so we kind of want to uh, get your thoughts because you obviously have a very unique insight on different protocols and products in the space uh, in terms of what advice you would give to them. So any person coming into the space uh, or has been in the space for a while, uh, what kind of advice would you give them in terms of building their next uh, product or protocol, uh, things to avoid, things to uh, lean into? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, so I'm not one to give career advice. Um, so I'll keep it relatively brief. But my kind of only general career advice is find stuff you, you're like you get up every day and you're actually interested in it and, and go do that. So if you're excited about Bitcoin Lightning Network, then go try and find a you know career opportunity there. If you're excited about DeFi, then you know go there. You're never going to be great unless you love what you're doing. And so if you're going to produce excellent results, you got to love it. And so go find something you can love and be excited about every day. That is a fact, my friend, and really good advice. Look, so what what are you excited about? So you obviously have a very large area that you kind of focus on in terms of crypto. You kind of see a lot of things every day. What are you excited about? Where where is your attention going? Where if you if you had, let's say, a hundred million dollars, where would you invest it? <laughs> I, I don't think that's too theoretical of a question. Like, our portfolio is, you know, we spent literally all day thinking about this question and, and uh, <laughs> debating it and you know, allocating accordingly. So, our portfolio is the answer. Uh, we, we, we don't disclose, you know, the relative weightings of our assets publicly, but uh, if you go to the portfolio page on our website, you know, we disclose all of our, the investments we've made. So, I mean, that that's the stuff we're most excited about. I wake up every day working with founders, working with other investors uh, to help make this stuff a reality. Gotcha. Yeah. Perhaps I, I phrased that question a bit funny. So I guess uh, what, what I was trying to get across is like, what are you excited about like um, in terms of areas? So I know like insurance is a big thing that's missing in DeFi right now. And a lot of people are speaking about that. Uh, risk management uh, is another one as well. Uh, what, what what kind of areas are you, are you focused on in terms of your headspace? I mean, I think the, the single largest untapped opportunity that to me is crystal clear is to build decentralized BitMEX. Um, Interesting. The tech isn't quite there to do it, but it's getting close. And uh, someone's going to figure it out and nail it. And we want to back them. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that is a wonderful note to end this conversation on. Kyle, it's been my absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. Um, I think you're one of the smartest thinkers in the space. You have a really good way of breaking down uh, complex topics around DeFi, open finance, uh, Web3 and non-sovereign monies. Um, and yeah, I, I am incredibly fortunate and grateful for you to come onto the show. And I'm excited to see how things play out in the next couple of years with Multicoin and the investments that you make. Hey, Abel, thank you so much for having me on the show. This was a pleasure. Really enjoy the conversation and, and exploring these ideas. This stuff is super fun and super wild. And so, um, you know, I get to think about it and write about it and talk about it internally, but it's always great to come share, share that thinking with uh, broader audiences. Mm-hmm.